You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Bibles open to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. We want everyone to have an opportunity to uh, follow along in God's Word. Uh, Today is an exciting day in uh, Johnsonville, Liberia. There's a brand new church uh, being planted in, uh, in that great nation in East Africa, West Africa, sorry. And uh, we're going to continue in our series called This Changes everything and how the gospel of Jesus Christ changes the way that we look at everything in our lives. Too often we think that what Jesus did changes one thing. It just changes where we go when we die, but everything else is just pretty much status quo going along with with the rest of the world, but that is not what Jesus came to do. He definitely came to change that one thing. He came from heaven so that we could go to heaven. He came from God in order to bring us to God. He died and rose again so that we can rise with him. That one thing for sure has changed, but because that one thing has changed, everything changes. We don't look at anything the same way. And we've been uh, going through looking at our own identity and then our relationships, our singleness has changed, our marriages have changed, our money and our work, all of these things have changed. But there is nothing in the life of the Christian that is so profoundly different and that is such a powerful witness to the watching world than the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes suffering. From Romans chapter 8 today, we are going to see how being a Christ follower Trusting him by faith for the forgiveness of your sins, being made new by the power of the gospel, having the filling of the Holy Spirit changes the way that we view suffering. And now I understand today that this message is going to touch some nerves. It is going to go into some places that are well guarded and well protected. Because there are many people here whose pasts are just marked with moments of intense suffering. There are uh, some here whose, whose mind is plagued by the anticipation of future suffering. And there are other people who are here right now who are right in the middle of suffering. They're asking God questions like, how long, Lord? They're asking God questions like, why is this happening? And so we need need God's grace. We need his spirit to help us. And we need his word to speak to us. And so I want to invite you, whether you're here today and and suffering is part of your past, or whether a suffering is something that you're continually afraid of and avoid at all costs, or whether suffering is something that you are going through right now, we all need God's grace, and we all need to hear from him speaking through his word right now. And so let's all bow our heads together and ask God to do what only he can do by his spirit. And so God, we confess our complete and utter dependence on you. 
Lord, we just sang that beautiful truth that you are always by our side. At our lowest, at our breaking, you are always with us. And so God, I pray right now that that truth and that that reality would speak so powerfully, Lord, to each and every heart that's gathered here in your name. God, I pray that you'd be with your servant. I pray that as as my mouth is open, that your voice would be heard, God, and that you would speak so profoundly and so powerfully. We need you, Lord. We're counting on you this morning to speak and to lead, to comfort those who need to be comforted, to strengthen those who are weak, God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The odd thing about suffering is that for the Christian, it's so often suffering that causes us to draw closer to God. Yet for the non-Christian, suffering is so often the reason why people say they're running from God. If you've shared your faith this week, chances are, One of the reasons someone said, well, I don't believe in God because one of the reasons why they would say they don't believe in God is because of the existence of suffering. That is one of the most universal arguments for the non-existence of God. People trying to explain why there can't be a God. And it goes something like this. It's, It's not new. It's actually from a man named uh, Epicurus, who was an ancient Greek philosopher. And this is what's called the Epicurean Paradox. You've probably heard this in a number of different forms. He says, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but does not want to. If he wants to, but cannot, he is not all-powerful. If he can but does not want to, he is not good. If God can abolish evil and God really wants to do it, why is there evil in the world? Now you might not have heard someone call it the Epicurean paradox, but we've all heard people make that kind of argument. I don't believe in God because God's supposed to be all powerful and God's supposed to be all good. And so why doesn't he use his power to stop evil? And why why doesn't his goodness motivate him to do that? And so we're going to wrestle with those questions. We're going to look at suffering and evil in our world through Romans chapter 8. We're going to go from verse 18 all the way down to verse 39. We're going to look at a longer passage of scripture here today. And wrestle with this idea of how should a Christian view suffering? How do we respond to that kind of an argument. Well, if we take a look at verse 18 of Romans 8, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Apostle Paul looks at the suffering that he himself was experiencing. He looks at the suffering that the church at Rome was going through. And he said, it is not worth comparing to what he is looking forward to. You can make note of this, that as we look at suffering and see how the gospel changes the way we view suffering, that we have a hope that is incomparable. 
we have a hope that is incomparable. If you take a close look at verse 18, he says, I, cons- I consider the sufferings of this present time. What's he referring to? He's referring to the fact that there is this time right now, but that there is another time. There is something that we are looking forward to in the future. He says, this present time, he says, they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul said something similar in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 17. He said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's no comparison. The suffering that we experience here on earth cannot be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. But there's a, there's a deeper, more incredible truth. Even the celebrations and the joyful moments and the successes Even those things can't be compared with the glory that awaits us. That there is something that the Christian knows that's coming their way, and they are hoping for it. They are looking forward to it. And what Paul here is stating in verse 18, this this flies in the face of what we hear so much in contemporary Christian culture. This this idea that that you can live your best life now. Your best life is not now. Your best life is eternal life in heaven. It's not worthy to be compared to anything that is bad or that is good here and now in this present time. You also hear Christians say stuff like, like, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. I'm like, whoever said that has never been on Highway 410. Like, there's nothing enjoyable about Highway 410. It's, it's all about, you got to get home, you got to get to work, you got to get to Orangeville, or, or wherever you're headed, you are, it's, it's not about the journey. I don't care how nice your car is, I don't, I, don't care who's, I don't care who's there with you, listen, they can make it more enjoyable, but it's all about the destination, And it's the hope and the anticipation of the destination that gives you the strength to endure the journey and to enjoy the good things that happen and to put up with the bad things that happen. We have a hope that is incomparable. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What we have happening here is um, a literary term called uh, personification, that the, the created world is being described as though it were a human being, and that it's, it's groaning, it's, it's been subjected, it's like the whole world, the whole universe is enslaved, and it says that it has been subjected because of him who subjected it. What's being uh, described here is that when Adam and Eve sinned, Suffering began in the world. Genesis 3 verse 17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. When Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, they brought suffering into the world. Just like in our own lives, when we choose to sin, we are opening ourselves up to a world of suffering. Doesn't mean that every instance of suffering means it's because you've sinned. But the reason why there is suffering in this world is because God has subjected this world to futility. This world is not as it ought to be. He goes on to say in verse 21, 
At the end of verse 20, look with me there. It says, who subjected it in hope. There is a hope. This isn't always going to be like this. There will be a change. And knowing that there will be a change changes everything. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole world is waiting for that moment when Christ will return and we will all go with him. The whole world is longing for that moment because once sin is once and for all dealt with, then the curse that God put on the earth will be once and for all dealt with. You see, Christ came and he, he dealt with the penalty of sin by dying on the cross. He dealt with the power that sin has over us by sending us the Holy Spirit, but he hasn't yet dealt with the presence of sin. We still experience sin, and because we still experience sin on earth, we experience suffering on earth. But when Christ returns, sin will be dealt with, the curse will be dealt with, and this created order in which we experience suffering will be set free. You see, we suffer in a number of ways. We suffer because of physical illness or mental illness. We, we, we suffer because of a relational difficulty. We suffer because of financial crises that uh, happen or because we brought it upon ourselves or something outside of our control. We suffer because of natural disasters in our world. We suffer, suffer because there's evil forces at work all around us. All of that is a result of the curse and all of that will come to an end. And it's all hinging upon, notice the end of verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If you're here today, you can call God Father because of what Jesus did for you. He came as the Son of God so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. This is the hope that we are looking forward to. And so we know as Christians that there is an end point. There is something that we are looking towards. He further explains it in verse 22. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I'm married to the most incredible woman in the, in the world. Her name's Lindsay. She's sitting right over here. If you haven't met her, you need to. She's unbelievable. And uh, she has uh, given birth to uh, our four sons. And, and at each and every uh, birth, there was a, a, a point in which she started to experience birth pains. Uh, but the birth pains are leading towards something. They are leading towards a birth. And after our kids were born, uh, Lindsay would, you know, deal with a whole lot of things. Looking after the child, having no sleep, all just that kind of fog that you have as new parents. But I never once heard Lindsay complain about contractions. Once the child comes, there's no more contractions. There's no more birth pains after the birth. The birth pains lead to birth. Are you following me? I'm not a doctor, but are you following me? And so we know the very metaphor there is showing that it's going to come to an end. And this is what Epicurus misses. Take a look at this paradox that seems to trap us and ensnare us. How am I ever going to make sense of this? Take a look at what he says. Either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but does not want to. This is a false paradox. This is a false dichotomy. He's describing it as though there's only two options. There's totally a third option. 
and that God, in his infinite wisdom and according to his plan, could allow pain and suffering to happen and will one day bring it to an end. And that's, that's the Christian view of suffering. We know that it's coming to an end. There will be no more contractions after the birth. That is our hope. We know that it is over. The very question that Epicurus is asking here is is what led uh, another philosopher, an atheist philosopher, to think deeply about why am I so upset about evil? Why, why, Why is the Epicurean paradox so appealing? Why do people so often mention that? And that atheist philosopher was was C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis had this to say on the topic of suffering. He said, my argument against God, this was before he became a Christian when he was an atheist. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, C.S. Lewis recognized that he couldn't, he couldn't tell God that this isn't the kind of world that he should have created because what was the frame of reference that C.S. Lewis was using to describe suffering, to describe evil? And C.S. Lewis recognized that God, that God has placed in all of us his image and that we were created for Eden not for Brampton. We were, we were created for paradise, not for a creation that is groaning. We were created to live in the presence of God. All of us, inside of us, have this sense of the straight line. And the reason why suffering is such an obstacle, the reason why it rubs us the wrong way, is because we know this isn't the way it was meant to be. And the Bible tells us, yeah, This is how the world started, and this is how it's going to end. It started with a straight line. It's going to end with a straight line, and it is vision, no crooked in the middle. And no other worldview, no other religion, no other philosophy makes sense of suffering the way that Christianity makes sense of suffering, that we have this hope that is incomparable Verse 23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the creation is groaning, but we are also groaning because we know the line is crooked. And we have this hope for what's coming in the future. Here's what we're looking forward to in the future. Revelation 21, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is where we're all headed. This is the hope that we have. And then Revelation 22, no longer will anything be accursed. The curse will be lifted. The curse of Sin, the futility that the world is subjected to that leads to all of the suffering we experience will one day be dealt with. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
that we have a hope that is incomparable. And we need to, we need to rescue the, world hope, the word hope from the way it's used in our world today. When we talk about hope, we talk about, you know, things we would like to have happen. We, would, we, 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 we hope that it would be a sunny on uh, Victoria Day weekend. Uh, we hope that the Raptors will come back and beat Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, there are these things that we hope for, but chances are we tend to only use the word hope if it's like, eh, it's not looking good. But hope in the New Testament is something that you are rock solid, absolutely positive about. It is a conviction. It is an absolute expectation that this is how it's going to turn out. That every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more crying or mourning or pain. That the old will be gone. The crooked will be dealt with. And there will be a straight line. We have a hope that is incomparable. So, how do we... How do we engage now as Christians? How do we face suffering? If we know that kind of uh, intellectually, if we understand that that is what is going to happen, what do we do in the moment when we experience suffering? That's what he addresses in verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Not only is the world fallen, but our, our, our bodies are fallen our minds are fallen, and although we've been made new and have a, have a new heart, that new heart is living in the context of a, of a fallen world. Inwardly we are being renewed, but outwardly we are wasting away. But the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness, and this is how he helps us. For we do not know how we ought to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know how to pray. Have you ever been in that situation? We get hundreds of connection cards every week, people writing down their prayer requests. So many times I'm sitting there before the Lord trying to pray faithfully for our people. I don't know how to pray for this situation. A marriage that's struggling, someone who's uh, ill or, or not well, uh, someone brings to mind some sort of uh, persecution that's happening uh, uh, around the world. How are we supposed to pray? Did someone ever call you up and, and they just got bad news from the doctor and then they ask you to pray for them, and then you're, you're wondering, how, how do I pray? And even as you're praying for them, it sort of goes along the lines of, oh God, uh, heal them, or, or give the doctors wisdom to help them. God, use medicine, or, or a miracle. Uh, we pray for faith. Uh, you're sovereign. Uh, should I even ask that they would get better, or should I be asking to give them endurance while they... like? Am I the only one who struggles with that? No one's nodding right now. How should, we, how should we pray? When we hear about Boko Haram or about ISIS, should we be praying that they be defeated or that they get converted? How are, how are we supposed to wrestle with these things? How do we deal with consent to help us? Suffering around the world, how do we pray? Well, God's word tells us that the Spirit has been sent to help us. And it says that he is helping us with groanings that are too deep for word. Notice the repetition of groaning. The creation's groaning. We're groaning. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning. 
Now, some people understand the, the groaning of the Spirit as being, you know, speaking in tongues, that sort of, uh, that sort of thing. That's a discussion for another time, but that's, that's not what, what this verse is referring to. Because of verse 27, it says, He who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So this is something that's happening on a heart level, in, in, on a mind level, not something that's actually And it says, the Spirit intercedes for the saints, notice this, according to the will of God. Don't we always just want to pray the will of God? We want to pray God's will, and we're so encouraged to, to just that the Spirit is helping us in our weakness. And so we do not need to be obsessed with making sure that our prayers fit in with the right theological framework. We're, our prayer is about pouring out our heart, and the Spirit will fill in the blanks, and the Spirit will lead us and guide us according to His will. And even if we're praying something against God's will, the spirit inside of us is interceding silently and supernaturally so that our prayer would line up with the will of God. That's an incredible truth. So we need to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, when we encounter suffering, we have permission to groan. Sometimes when we talk about suffering as Christians, we, we talk about it as though we're supposed to be okay with it. Uh, the book of Psalms is 150 chapters of the soundtrack of groaning that we are invited to, even commanded to, groan in the face of suffering and the Spirit is right there along with us groaning too deep for words. We have a hope that is incomparable. We're living in the midst of the crooked line, longing for the line to be made straight, confidently hoping and expecting that that will take place. So we have a hope that is incomparable. Now look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, jot this down, that we have a purpose that is indestructible, that we have a purpose that is indestructible. Not only can the Christian look forward to the new heavens and the new earth and know that suffering will be dealt with then once and for all, the Christian can actually look at their present circumstance and know that God has a purpose for what is happening, whether it's good or whether it's bad. He says, we know that for those who love God, this isn't a promise for everyone. This is a promise for those who love God. And our mission as a church is to make disciples, to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment that as we make disciples, we are teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And Jesus commanded that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love because he first loved us. And if you're here today and you've been saved and you love God, then you can be in this, that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Now let's be clear here. This is not saying that all things are good. Again, this is just a misunderstanding. Sometimes people just throw Romans 8.28 at people and they just sort of uh, uh, tritely and insensitively Use Romans 8.28. Oh, cheer up, Romans 8.28. It's all good. It's not all good. 
all things work out for good, including evil things, horrible things, terrible things, things that we should be groaning about, not putting proof texts on. Wisdom causes all things. It is all God in his infinite wisdom causes all things to work together. It came out so clearly in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, Genesis 50 verse 20. He told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph didn't, didn't thank his brothers for selling him into slavery. They didn't thank him for everything that he endured. Jo- Joseph wasn't glad that it happened. He called it evil. But he knew that God was in it. Sometimes we think that if we're going to suffer rightly as a Christian, we're supposed to act like we're happy that it's happening to us. That's not true. The issue is not the the gladness in our circumstances, but the goodness of God. He causes all things to come together for the good of those who love him. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This is a verse that many people hold very dear. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now some people like that verse uh, because it gives them great comfort, but we always need to understand God's word in context. Jeremiah 29 is being written to a group of people who had their city invaded by an enemy army, who had their homes burned to the ground, who had their temple and their palace and their entire way of life taken away from them and then transported a thousand miles away to a foreign land with a foreign language and they were enslaved. And you, as you think through everything that had happened, everything that brought the people of Israel up to Jeremiah 29, 11 was evil, 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 evil. But God says, I am working all things. I'm working all of this for good. I have a plan for you. And that plan that he gave them, you need to read Jeremiah 29 looking back. You also need to read Jeremiah 29 looking forward because the plan involved 70 years of living in that foreign culture as slaves. And see, some of us are on sort of like the the seven-day plan with God. Or the seven-minute plan. God's more like the seven-decade plan. And so he does have good plans for us. And he causes everything to come together for good. But God is normally working on a larger vision and on a longer timeline than we can fit into our little minds. And I love Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. God causes all things to come together for our good. Why does everything come together for our good? Because God is good. And sometimes for a season, God prepares our palate with the bitterness of suffering in order that we could delight in the sweetness of his goodness. That is simply his plan. He causes these things to come together for our good. Then he outlines the purpose in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among justified. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul lays out this five 
point purpose, foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying. And this is his plan. And if you're a follower of, of Jesus Christ, that means that he foreknew you and he predestined you and he has, and, and he has called you and he, is, he has justified you and he will glorify you. And nothing can stop that. No suffering, no evil, no difficulty. Nothing can stop that purpose from happening. It is indestructible. It is this rock-solid chain that is linking us to, it is our anchor that is connecting us in our relationship with God. It's his indestructible purpose for our lives. Now, it's a, this is kind of a controversial verse because it has the word uh, predestined in it. And some people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of God choosing us before the foundation of the world, even though it's, it's mentioned repeatedly all throughout the Bible that God in eternity past, this is called the doctrine of election, that before you did anything right or wrong, before you chose to follow him, God chose you. Now some people zero in on that first word, foreknowledge. Well, God, he predestined us, but he predestined us because he foreknew us. He had foreknowledge and sort of like God being omniscient knows everything. Him, before he created the world, looked into the future because he knows everything, saw that you would choose him. And because he saw that you would choose him, then he decided to choose you. That's how some people understand foreknowledge. That reduces God to an insecure sixth grader who sends his friend to ask the girl if she likes him before he asks her to the dance. That's not who God is. And that's a complete misunderstanding of what the word foreknowledge means in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, when he's talking about Abraham, he says, I have chosen you. The, the Hebrew there is, I have known you. To know someone means to be in a relationship with them, to love them. Exodus 33, 17, he says to Moses, I know you by name. Does God know everyone's name? He does, but he said, I know you by name to Moses to communicate the relationship that they had with one another. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. God knows that about every human being, but he had a special relationship with Jeremiah. He knew him. He was connected with him in a relationship before he was born because he had already made that decision to shower his grace and his love on him. Amos 3.2, you only have I known from all the families of the earth, talking about the people of Israel. Doesn't God know every family? He does, but he says, I have known you. I am connected with you. I have a relationship with you. When it talks about foreknowledge, it's not talking about God just omnisciently looking into the future. It's God's decision to love and to set apart his chosen ones. That's what foreknowledge means. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown doesn't mean that he knew all about Jesus and what he was going to do. It means that God the Father loved God the Son in eternity past. And when it says in Romans 8 that God foreknew you and therefore predestined you, it means that he loved you and therefore predestined you. That's why Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. You see, the main argument against why people say they, they, they don't like predestination 
is because they think it means that God just sort of arbitrarily picks people. That's not true. He chooses because he loves. And God's people have been chosen out of an overflow, not of some cold, calculated, arbitrary decision, but out of love, out of his foreknowledge, he predestined us. And those who are predestined, he called. And many who are here today have heard God call. They might have heard someone speak, but they heard God call. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're in the midst of suffering right now, and you don't know Jesus Christ. And maybe God is calling you. Maybe he's calling you to himself to repent of your sin, to believe that Jesus died for you, and to receive the gift of eternal life and see how that truly does change everything. We have been called and then we have been justified, which is that we're declared righteous. We mentioned this in the, in the sermon called, This Changes My Identity. To be justified means to be treated just as if I'd, just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd always obeyed. That's to be justified. That's a Jerry Bridges' way of helping us understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then he ends by saying, those whom he justified at the end of verse 30, he also glorified. Now, those of us who are kind of theologically minded, if we were looking over Paul's shoulder while he was writing this letter to the Romans, we would have been like, Paul, I think you made a mistake there, dude. Glorification is something that's happening in the future. It's, it's It's not a past tense kind of thing, but I love that Paul used the past tense here. Why did he use the past tense to talk about something that's supposed to happen in the future? Here's why. Because it's a, we can be sure of this. Because God promised it, so we know it's true. Philippians 1, we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. We can talk about our future glorification. When the world and the creation is set free from the curse of sin, we can talk about that as though it's already happened. Our glorification described in the past tense because God is faithful and he will surely do it. Then in verse 31 it says, what what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? And right now, the Apostle Paul, he's just going to go off. And he's just going to... He's just going to describe the beauty of the gospel and the security that we have in Christ. Because God foreknew us, glorified, predestined us, and called us, and justified us, and will glorify us, but it's so firm, it's as though it's in the past tense. Whatever happens to us, we know that we are secure in Christ. And so listen to what he says. Verse, Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's not saying that a Christian can't have any enemies. It's not saying that a Christian will never experience the purpose for it. In comparison to the fact that God is with us and that he loves us and has a purpose for us, who can be against us? And this is the third thing that we need to understand in the midst of our suffering, that we have an invincible love, a love that is absolutely invincible, that nothing ever can separate us from the love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That all things, what are the all things? That doesn't mean that everyone gets three Land Rovers and a three-car garage to put them in. That whether it's good or bad things, it's referring to the all things working together for our good. 
That whether it's good or bad, whatever is happening, it's all worth his own son for God's good purpose. And it says, he who did not spare his own son. If Christ's suffering had a purpose for our good, then we can believe that our suffering has a purpose for our good. And when we pray and groan and ask God to help us, we are not simply just talking to some God who's up there on his throne. We are talking to the God who came down here and suffered for us, who can identify with us in our weakness, and who suffered for us. And so that we can come to him in the midst of our suffering and receive so much blessing and encustifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In verses 26 and 27, it said the Spirit is interceding for us. Now we have the Son interceding for us. The Spirit is inside of us, interceding before God the Father. Jesus is before the throne of God, interceding for God the Father to give us everything that we need to endure in the midst of suffering who is to condemn he asks in verse 34 who is to condemn listen Satan is called the accuser of the, of, of the brothers and so he's eager to try to condemn us some of us our own conscience and our own weakness we condemn ourselves the fundamental question that so many of us ask in the midst of suffering is is God punishing me Have I done something? Is that why this is happening? And the answer, I want to make it as lovingly and as clearly as I can make. If you are here today and you think that you are going through something because God is punishing you, and if you are here today and you are in Jesus Christ, trusting him by faith, I want to tell you that the emphatic answer to the question, is God punishing me, is absolutely not. And that is not possible. All of the punishment that you deserve was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. Is there consequences for our sins? Yes, we need to understand for you. But you are never, ever being punished if you are in Jesus Christ. He was punished for you. And so don't allow your own, your own conscience to condemn you. And then I love verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he gives this big list. Shall shall tribulation or distress, the the suffering that we experience here in the world, or, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Then he says, as it is written, he quotes from Psalm 34, for your sake, for the sake of God. Psalm to read, it talks about the suffering of innocent people. It says, for your sake, for the sake of God, believers are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, we're not somehow exempt from suffering as followers of Jesus Christ. It it doesn't mean that because you're a, a follower of Christ that you won't experience suffering. John Stott said that Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation, tribulation, or tragedy. But we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. That's why in verse 35 it says, no, in all these things. He said all things now three times. God causes all things to come together for our good. God 
gave us his son, how will he not also with him give us all things? And now he says, no, in all these things, notice this, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. God is for us. And God is good. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward now. And we're going to respond in song together. And a little while ago, Jameson wrote a song for our church, and he wrote it out of an experience of Jesus suffering in his, uh, in his own life. And uh, God's used this song to really bless me in, in my own life and my own walk with the Lord and, and to bless many other people. And we are going to uh, sing this song in response today. Sing this song recognizing that what Romans 8 tells us is, is that we can still expect suffering, but that we don't look at it the same way and we don't smugly cast aside our theology like Epicurus would by saying well suffering explains away God no suffering actually points us so clearly to who God is it points us to it for us in suffering when Jesus died on the cross for us and so that we can we can look at our suffering, that we can look at our struggles and our trials and our tribulations and our tragedies and know that God has a purpose and that I have a hope and that I have a God who loves me and a God who is good. And so let's stand together. Some of us today, we're going to be standing by faith. We're going to be singing by faith, believing these truths, even right in the middle of of our suffering and our struggles. Let's call out to God. Some of us will be singing. Some of us will be groaning. God will be hearing it all. Let's lean on the Lord. Let's confess our complete and utter dependence on Him and let's confess and declare that no matter what is happening, no matter what we are facing, that God is working it together for good because He is good. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.